You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. You might know who Mike Bloomberg is by now. Have, do, you, do you know who Mike Bloomberg is? The former mayor of New York and a billionaire who is buying his way into our lives via YouTube advertisements. You go on YouTube and then in between is Mike Bloomberg. This happens to you? Happens to me. And he's, he's, he's making a bid for the presidency. And I kind of feel bad telling you about him because if you haven't heard of him before, I'm giving him free advertising, which is disappointing because he's been known to pay a lot of money for ads. <laughs> I'm not gonna get any of that money. Like he took out an ad for the Super Bowl a few weeks ago, that's a lot of money. He has like endless amounts of money. This isn't an exaggeration. Like he pays his field workers $6,000 a month. Not bad at all. Pretty good gig if you need one. You know, it might not be for other reasons, but you know, it's a lot of money. Um, And he's probably never going to drop out of the race because his money is eternal. Billionaires are an interesting result of policy failure, if you ask me. And a billion dollars is a lot of money. Jeff Bezos has a hundred and $25 billion. And, and if you took, if it took him, if it took him a dollar, if it took him a second to count a dollar, it would take him 4,000 years to count all of his money. That's a lot. 4,000 years is hard to even comprehend because 2,000 years ago was Jesus. 2,000 years before that, you, you, you just had like King Saul of the United Monarchy. I mean, it's a long time ago, you know? No, King Saul was 1,000 years before Jesus. So he was 1,000, Saul was? So what was 2,000 years ago? The Exodus. Okay, never mind. Now we're getting into a weird dating discussion. So that was 1,000, so even before that, so you had about like, that's, that's a long time ago. The Old Testament's like 5,000 years, roughly. And so, whatever. It's a lot of Bezos money. Anyway, <laughs> Bloomberg is gaining popularity in, in, in um, the, the Democratic popularity, and so naturally there's some mudslinging happening. Bloomberg's record on race relations is coming to light. This is what I want to talk about briefly, including his support of a policy called Stop and Frisk. You heard this before? Here's Bloomberg. Here's what he said about stop and frisk. It's called a Terry stop. Why is it called a Terry stop? Because of the 1968 Supreme Court ruling, Terry versus Ohio, which allows cops to search civilians and suspects, here's the big change, without probable cause to arrest. What does that mean? It means they don't need a warrant to stop you. They just need reasonable suspicion. The court argued in 1968 that such stops don't violate the Constitution's prohibition against unreasonable search and seizure, which you may recall in some distant uh, memory of a civics class. So in effect, cops can search anyone they are reasonably suspicious of as long as they have facts that they can articulate as to why they did it. And those facts can be found on most of us. That policy came into popularity in cities like New York and Philadelphia. And I just want to give us some context. 
um, when there was a very high murder rate in the city. And we didn't really have time for systemic solutions or the imagination for them. And so this policy um, was employed. And you can see, so you can understand it, but you can see how quickly it would become racialized. In Bloomberg's taped recording that he had a preference for Terry Stops in black and brown neighborhoods where he thought more crime happened. And this is all technically legal because the court allows racial profiling when it comes to Terry Stops. That's a federal, um, the federal government doesn't ban racial profiling when it comes to Terry Stops. So it goes down to the state and local level and only 16 states ban those kinds of stops. Pennsylvania isn't one of them. New York isn't either. So only 16 states don't allow racial profiling for pretextual stops. Cops can stop you for any reason. And they can frisk you if they have any reasonable suspicion based on specific um, facts that they can articulate that you have a weapon on you. So what does that mean? It means baggy clothing, hands in pockets, reasonable suspicion to be frisked. That's all it means. And they can usually develop the, the reasonable suspicion upon being questioned later. Really not hard to do it. You know, they can pull you over for whatever reason you want, but they want, maybe because they think you have drugs or some other thing you shouldn't have, and then give you um, a traffic violation ticket to kind of justify why they pulled you over. Does that make sense? So it's a mess. And you can see how power would be abused here and how race in particular would be a play a significant factor. It's another piece of evidence of this proverb we have in Circle of Hope. The United States, in the United States, the sin of racism impacts all we experience. It's a fact of life for which the dominators are accountable. That means that everything in the United States is tainted with racism. Not just Bloomberg, not just the racist laws, but everything. That's how it works. And so you can't, you can't just get over it. Bloomberg isn't the only one that thinks like this, obviously. And we could go through the whole, the, the, um, all the candidates, if you like, and cite their uh, errors, if you wish. I'm just thinking about Bloomberg today, although his are particularly egregious, if you ask me. But he's, he's been in the news this week, so that's why, that's why we're here. Here's another word from the former mayor. In 2008, he suggested that the Great Recession, the Great Recession refers to the economic downturn of the global economy between 2007 and 2010. He suggested it was, it, was, it was the result of ending redlining. The economic downturn was caused in part by the subprime mortgage crisis, which saw a decline in home prices, which led to more financial problems. This might be a little too uh, boring for you, so just bear with me. We'll get somewhere soon. So the two reasons why the crisis happened and home prices went down were an increase in subprime lending. What's a subprime loan? It means a loan to someone who can't reasonably pay for it, and they were all variable interest rates. And also, there was an increase in lending speculation. People thought houses were worth more, were, were more valuable than they were, and banks gave out loans with adjustable interest rates to people with bad credit history. This is a predatory practice that targets people of color by giving them a loan that they can't afford with a variable rate. And that variable rate, coupled with the bad loan, is exploitative. It's predatory. 
it's wrong. And Wells Fargo admitted to doing this. Bloomberg said, no, redlining actually caused the downturn. The end of redlining caused the downturn. Cause the downturn. Now, what's what's redlining? Redlining is the practice of banks avoiding so-called high-risk areas to make any sort of real estate loan to, even ethical ones, ones without variable interest rates. And Bloomberg basically said, if it wasn't for banks lending to poor people of color, none of this would have happened. That's a racist lie, but nevertheless, one that the mayor articulated. Redlining is a racist act that keeps communities of color and immigrant communities, in particular um, in cities like this, like Philadelphia, subjugated with limited opportunities. Here's the 1936 map of Philadelphia that shows how redlining worked. You can see the historic black and brown, uh, brown and immigrant neighborhoods that suffered the most. Right here, right? So we're like here somewhere, right? And then... This is Center City, this is North Philly, South Philly, and then you can see where the rest is. Does that make sense? You have an idea about how Philadelphia works. And you can see all the red is hazardous, which is just really interesting to think about. We're in the, in 1936, this is a hazardous part of town. And what's worse is any revitalization that's occurred in these neighborhoods as you look at this, has occurred not because of an organic uh, uplifting of long-term residents, but really because of how transplants and, and moving has worked and gentrification and so on. You know, that's a, this is a big subject, of course, but I don't want you to get the idea that we're over it. <coughs> because, you, because, you know, obviously banks are very comfortable lending out loans in this neighborhood right now, right? That, that, that wasn't all. There, there's a lot more work that we could do. Anyway, now the reason I bring up these two examples... Yeah, this is this is a super interesting map, so just keep looking at it. It's good. The reason I bring up these two examples is because it showcases the criminal and economic oppression of black and brown communities that is in the fabric of our society. Criminal because of the stop and frisk, economic because of redlining. And because the end of racist practices is said to have caused an economic downturn. So these things are happening both in law and in market, in the government and the market, the two main forces over our lives. So what this shows is that the nature of racism in the United States isn't just a matter of what personal behavior. Because none of us stop and frisk anybody, and none of us are lending out loans, as far as I know. Some of us might be, but most of us aren't. That's not, that's not what's happening. So it's not my personal behavior. Like, I'm gripping up a black boy, right? I'm not doing that. I'm not lending out a loan either. So the, the racism isn't just about personal behavior. It's deeper. It's systemic. Now, the reason I'm comfortable with that is because the sin of racism, like so many other sins, isn't just the sum of individual actions, right? It's in the air that we breathe. It's in the water that we swim. It's in the world that we live in. And it's not even just based on individual complicity, the New Testament in general describes sin as a condition that the world is in, that Jesus is liberating it from. And that, 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 that condition that the world is in is evidenced by individual actions. That is to say, when we do things that we shouldn't do, it's because we live in this world and there's further evidence that this is all happening around us. But it's evidenced by those individual actions, but it isn't encompassed by them. This is why Paul says in, in, in Corinthians, 
He's calling us to a new creation, calling us to something new has happened, this, this liberation of Jesus against this, this uh, fabric of our society, this world of sin, this condition that we're in. This is what he says to the Corinthians. Someone out loud read this, please. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God is reconciling us through Christ, thank you, Craig, and we are reconciling to one another as a way of mimicking God's work. That's the ministry of reconciliation. And when it comes to racism in the U.S., the legacy is long. It's written into the Constitution. It's undergirded by the legacy, the heinous legacy of racialized chattel slavery. And, and it, it's why it's good for us to familiarize ourselves with the history of racism and even the church's complicity in it, which is why the Circle Mobilizing team is having us all, Circle Mobilizing because Black Lives Matter team is having us all read Jamar Tisby's excellent book, which I just finished, The Color of Compromise, which really just sprints through the uh, history of racism in the U.S. And it's, it's fast. It covers a lot of ground in a short amount of time. As a church, we're committed to anti-racism. We're committed to diversity. We're committed to racial reconciliation. We're very open about that. And so, like, that's, 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 we, we don't want you to wait to discover that. And for my part, you're a brown pastor. These matters have existential importance to me. They matter specifically to me because they are a part of my body. I didn't make them a part of my body. I was born with this body, and then meaning was assigned to it. I didn't attach meaning to it. It was attached to me. So I care about these things very personally because they're a part of me. And I couldn't be part of a church that wasn't anti-racist. I want to work toward reconciliation between me and those who have wronged me and between those who I have wronged as well. Does that make sense? So what's reconciliation look like? You can't reconcile with unrepentant people. Can't do it. It doesn't work. You may forgive them, hard as it may be. But we can't reconcile with unrepentant people. I'm talking to victims of racism right now. So if that's you, keep an ear open. If it's not, just listen for now. We're talk, we talk about reconciliation in Circle of Hope a lot. It's right in our vision statement. We say we're a people called to reconciliation. And that reconciliation isn't just a matter of engendering Peace, but demanding justice. When I say justice here, I mean it in the same way the New Testament writer means it. For the word righteousness, rectification, justice, it's not just a matter of engendering peace, it's a matter of making things right. Reconciliation is a two-way street, though. It takes two or more people to get together to forgive one another. And it's hard to forgive without repentance. But I think that there's a Christian command to do that. For our purpose tonight, that's neither here nor there. I want to talk about how reconciliation, even after repentance, doesn't taste the same way that we think retribution, retributive justice, tastes like in the way that we conceptualize it. Reconciliation is asking us to do something that isn't satisfying in the same way that retribution purports to be. When you reconcile with somebody, 
it's not going to feel the same way. Your pain won't be gone. It'll still hurt. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't erase it. It's asking us to let go, to let someone's resistant, repentance be enough. And when we decide to forgive, when we decide to reconcile, that our, the, the, the victims that are deciding to do that are making a bold, brave, courageous choice. So don't let that be lost on you. There's a real sacrifice when we move towards forgiveness. It costs a lot. It's never cheap. But it doesn't heal our wounds in the same way that we imagine revenge will. It moves us from dwelling on it. It moves us from deepening our rage, our desire for revenge. There's freedom in that. But there's a cost to that freedom. I was confronted with this recently when I received an email from an enraged person. Someone who explicitly said they didn't want to make amends with me. They just wanted to tell me off. I've gotten some bad emails in my day and I have a folder for mean emails that I, I collect so I can look through them later in case I need to self-deprecate or feel humble. It's a nice, it's a nice kind of a, um, ascetic practice, right? Sometimes I print them out and burn them, or at least someone told me to do that and I never did, but that's, that's an idea. Um, I don't want to get rid of them. You know, I, I want to hold them with everything else. I'm not sure exactly what the point of this dude's message was besides expressing his anger and hoping that he might feel better after. Um, and I just kind of let it go. You know, I gave him the best apology I could and said, you know, if you want to talk more, we can. But that's the end of that, unfortunately. The dialogue ended. And I felt for him in some sense because I just think anger, I don't know if anger is the best way to healing. Um, I don't think violence is either. Even violence against evildoers. You know, we, we, we have to justify violence so extensively because it's so apparently wrong. It's tempting to want to offer equal retribution to evildoers. But I fear that's what makes, that makes us as evil as they are. I think God demonstrates compassion and acceptance to repentant evildoers and even asks us to do the same. But, 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 but I, 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 I want to sit there for a second because it doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel good. It feels wrong. Jonah from the Bible learns this the hard way, that grace can sting. Jonah was called to minister to the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire is the most brutal, one of the most brutal empires of all time. They committed unimaginable war crimes to maintain their power in the region. Cruelty was their specialty. They burned and skinned and cut off the heads of their enemies. They overzealously conquered their enemies, paying them with much more than their misdeeds deserved. Entire cities were destroyed and burned. The level of cruelty was dominant among all of their kings in the new Assyrian period. First millennium BCE. We're only a thousand years into Jeff counting his money at that point. If you're, if you're just keeping track of like how much he has. That's why, it's, that's why they can give you free shipping. You know, they don't pay for everything, you know. Sorry, I get so caught up on this. Jonah the prophet, who God sends to Nineveh to preach against all the evil that's been happening in the city and in the whole empire. But Jonah famously fleds, uh, flees to Tarshish instead. And on his way there, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And then 
This startled his shipmates who were praying to their gods for safety. And finally, Jonah said to them, look, my God's the God of Israel. If you throw me overboard, the, the storm will calm. Since he knew God was trying to get him. And it worked. And then the shipmates worshipped Jonah's Lord. Nevertheless, as the story goes, Jonah is swallowed up for three days and three nights by a big fish. And Jonah offers a psalm to the Lord in gratitude, and the Lord liberates him from the belly of the fish. Jonah finally goes to Nineveh to preach against their evil and warn them of God's judgment and retribution, which is delivered through conquest. We will conquer you. This is what's going to happen. That's how it works in the Old Testament. You do a bad thing, you get taken over by another state, by another nation. And through Jonah's preaching and threatening, they repent. And then they fast, and they wear a sackcloth as a sign of their repentance. That hardly seems like a fair payment. You go brutalize all sorts of cities, skin people, burn them, burn their town down, destroy everything. But it moved God, who changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Jonah's furious that God preserved the, the preserved Nineveh and the Ninevites. And he admits, the reason, the reason I didn't want to go to Nineveh is because I know they would get, you would be merciful and true to your character and forgive them. That's why I didn't want to go, because I didn't think they deserved that. And I don't know why you do either. You can see all the evil that they're doing. Jonah is a murderous, murderous and suicidal at this point, so he flees again. This time, God provides him with shade through a bush, and that brings him joy and comfort. But then God curses the bush with a worm, and Jonah suffers under the immense heat of the Middle Eastern sun. Jonah becomes entitled to God's care, and when it's robbed of him, he gets mad. The point of the story is that the mercy of God isn't something we deserve, but something that's given to us in our moment of repentance. Nineveh receives the same grace from God. God is a God who is gracious to the entire city despite its ruler's evil behavior. God, despite its ruler's evil behavior, God is gracious to the entire city. Here's what God rhetorically asks Jonah in the final verse of the four-chapter book. You can read it tonight. Should I not be concerned about Nineveh? Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? God is saying, these people are not responsible for what their wicked rulers do and what do their animals have to do with it too? Like how much suffering do you want to bring on these people because of what their leaders did? I appreciate that argument. God forestalls retribution. But what kind of justice is that? Is forgiveness enabling oppression? If I forgive you, do I enable myself to be oppressed? Is that what heaven is? That the oppressed have to deal with the trauma of their oppression and never get the satisfaction of retribution? Is that what forgiveness is? Is that what this life's about? Fasting and sackcloth weren't exactly punishment for a series of extensive crimes. But when Israel allied with evil powers and did evil things, God spared them too. I appreciate that nuance. But it leaves a lingering question, especially around justice. 
Repentance and reconciliation are never going to feel satisfying in the same way that we think retribution will. In the same way that, that retribution purports to be. But when we talk about reparation, we're not talking about punishment. We're not talking about vengeance. And retribution doesn't ultimately feel satisfying at all. If Israel committed the war crimes that the Assyrians did, they would be just as guilty as they were. War crimes done in retribution are still criminal. This is a good lesson for U.S. foreign policy. War crimes done in retribution are still criminal. You don't get to do what you want because that happened to you, right? We're, we're sensitively dealing with these circumstances. I suppose brutally murdering and pillaging Assyria could be retributive justice. But we are better forestalling justice and moving towards forgiveness and reconciliation than just increasing animosity, hostility, violence, hatred. But true repentance means changing our behavior. True reconciliation comes when we change our behavior. The Ninevites repented and moved towards changing. So the story goes. Their repentance triggered God's grace. Our oppressors and abusers need to repent to seek reconciliation. And if you're an oppressor or an abuser, you need to repent to seek reconciliation. And short of repentance, we may forgive them, but we can't demand peace without demanding justice. Repentance isn't just saying things are right either. It's demonstrating that we're changing. It's the start of a journey. Reparations can be part of repentance and reconciliation. Reconciliation is a part of a journey. It's not the end of it. Retribution can end the journey really fast, and that can feel satisfying. But it limits our opportunity. We aren't going for perfect justice. We aren't going for right behavior. We're moving from the idea that, that we don't have to be perfect to be saved, that our actions aren't just the sum of society's evil, that we aren't responsible for the whole world on one hand. But on the other hand, I hope we can practice actually moving toward God, towards reconciliation, towards repentance. Call each other in instead of out, especially in our community. You know, sometimes our cries for justice can feel like expressions of justification to overcome guilt or to overcome our pain. It's not that easy, though. But just, just because you won't be perfectly woke doesn't mean that, that there isn't reparation to be had. Remember, <coughs> reparation is about restoration. It's not about punishment. And sometimes it can feel like punishment if you're very accustomed to how things are. It's not punishment, though. It's restoration. We're making things right. And that can be painful. That can feel like I'm being attacked. And I, I hope we, we can share what's happening with us and what we've experienced, knowing that we are all very sensitive and have all experienced different things. We're talking about race tonight, but there's a lot of ways that you can intersect this. Societally, but also personally. You know, we're also talking about how you and your spouse or you and your roommate or you and your mom are working things out. We're not going for perfect justice. We aren't going for right behavior. We're moving toward reconciliation.
So when we think of modern reparations, we're thinking more about righting wrongs than punishing wrongs. So even the notion of reparations for the descendants of racialized chattel slavery are not retributive in nature. They're restorative. Why aren't they retributive? Because no black American actually believes that we should enslave people, enslave all the white people. No one wants to do that, and everyone knows that's evil. But it's also true that turning the other cheek is not satisfying in the same way that we imagine retribution being. It's a conditioned myth that redemptive violence actually satisfies us. But I think the way of Jesus is better. Complete retribution makes the oppressed the oppressor. This is hard to imagine because we don't see the tables turning in our society anytime soon. But complete retribution makes the oppressed the oppressor. But God will divinely restore things in God's way. And God has through Jesus, really, on the cross. That's the work we're talking about. And there's a lot of speculation about how this all end up. And we can talk about that later if you want. But I'm at peace with God's answer for Jonah now. I'm a recipient of God's grace, even when I act as an oppressor. And in reconciliation, God will transform the repentant. And in our own forgiveness of those who harmed us, God will transform us too. Thank you, Lord, for being here and faithful and present. Keep showing us how to follow you in in radical forgiveness and and restoration and repentance. Help us to be change agents in this uh, world, making things right in our oh-so-wrong world. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.